If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have a great guest on the line today. I'm talking to Les Trackman. Les is the CEO of Trackman Group, which focuses on helping companies grow and scale while focusing on the important transitionary period in the life of a company. Not only does Les and his team help top organizations across the globe navigate founders' succession transition, Les has also been in the trenches himself as a CEO and has led six organizations at the executive level. He's currently the managing director of Purview, an early stage company focused on disrupting the medical imaging business. In addition to his work as a top-level CEO, Les is a noted teacher, thought leader, and speaker. Les has lectured at many numerous prominent universities, including the Harvard Business School, MIT Sloan, USC, and RPI. He's a contributor to the Harvard Business Review, in addition to many other business publications, and he has the distinct privilege of being a protagonist in a HBS case study titled Less is more times four. So I'm pleased to have Les on the show to tell us a little bit about his life, his background, and of course his new book titled Don't F It Up. So with that said, Les, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. Great, Les. So I've I've mentioned a little bit about your background. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and um how you got started on this journey. Yeah, so part partly through my career. Uh, I was in a senior executive level position in a public software company up in Boston and uh, got my first opportunity to engage in this crazy thing called being a successor to a founder. A small company in Connecticut called me in the technology business and said they needed a new CEO and uh, was I interested. Um, And at that time, actually, I was a little reluctant to do it, but I got involved with the company and began to learn my lessons about how difficult it is to replace a founder. Uh, I did that, uh, that company for, for a short period of time uh, and then ran into my first obstacle, which is that founders sometimes don't want to hear the truth that successors want to tell them. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they like it better the way they were doing it. Uh, and anyway, I went off to do this another five times, including the time that I'm doing right now with, uh, with Perfect. We talked about your new book. So tell us a little bit about um, how the book came about. Yeah, so the book is, a, is really the culmination of the first, I would say, five times that I've replaced founders. What I noticed as I was going through this, this process over the last 20 years or so is that there were lots of similarities between what I was running into and what founders were having to deal with when mm-hmm. they dealt with a successor like me. Mm-hmm. And so I began the process of, of uh, trying to scribe it down, trying to write down uh, some of those trends, trying to, trying to connect the dots that I was seeing. And, um, and along the way, actually, the, uh, the title of the book, that statement was made to me by one of, uh, one of the finest founders I've ever worked with. And uh, it was a very big company, a $350 million company, 
and he was handing off the reins to me, and he very casually said to me those words, don't F it up. And I, I somewhat ignored what he said. I knew the guy very well, and I thought he was playing around, and I didn't take it to heart until a couple weeks later, and it resounded back with me, and I realized that he was truly in fear. He yeah. was handing off his baby yeah. to me. I was going to adopt his baby, and he didn't want me to screw it up. Hmm. And so I got it, and it was very appropriate to name the book that because that really is the fear that most founders have when they hand off their companies. How long should a founder stay involved in their company that they formed until they hand it over to a professional CEO manager to run the company? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. It's the operative question that many founders ask me. And the, the answer is it, it varies. Mm. And it varies by a lot of things. So one is sometimes founders don't have any choice. And by that, I mean they have boards of directors, they have investors. And if you as a founder go out and get investment capital, it is a, just statistically, is a strong likelihood that you won't be around forever as the CEO. Obviously, there are some storied examples of exceptions to that. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, uh, if you take on investment capital, the investors have ideas that may end up different from you. And oftentimes, they have sufficient control and they can replace you. So sometimes you have no choice in the matter. On the other hand, when you do have a choice in the matter, I tend to focus in with founders when they ask that question on, are you having fun? And I don't mean, are you doing, you know, you're running a company, and that's what you always want to do. But are the tasks that your company is requiring of you now, are they still as much fun as it was when you started the company? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so many founders found companies because they are driven to innovate. They are driven to upset the apple cart of a marketplace. They're driven for some purpose that they think they can do better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. But after a while, as you grow the company, uh, that task becomes more of an execution task, yeah. more of a set of mundane things that you have to do to manage people, manage things, manage finances. And that often is not fun, and it's often not what a founder is good at. Yeah, and I know that it takes a certain skill set to actually start a company and get it off to a stage where, you know what, it might actually just plateau unless you get a professional to come in and take over from where where you, the founder, has reached because your skill set has only gone so far. You know, you need someone to take it to the next level. So when you come into a company, what are some of the main challenges you see with um, scaling efforts as, as you arrive as a new CEO? Yeah. So the, they, they fall into two major categories that you won't be surprised to hear, and that's people and processes. So first, let's start with the people because that's the toughest one of all. Mm -hmm. And that's founders typically have a very loyal group of, of followers in their companies. And that's a very natural thing. Founders are often great leaders. Uh, founders have to do the impossible. I like to say it's a magic trick because it's very, very difficult to found a company and make it successful, uh, certainly make it successful for longevity for, for a period of more than five or six years. Um, and what you get is you get a very tight group of people and a very loyal group of followers for the founder. Mm -hmm. the, 
the problem and maybe it's the opportunity that I tend to look at when I come to these companies is I've got a set of people that have a whole new task or set of tasks that they have to accomplish that are usually very different than it was during the founding process. And there's always a question as whether as to whether the people that are on the founders team at that time are competent for the next challenge, not the one they already accomplished, but the next challenge. So having to assess those people and having to take a, a clear eyed view as to whether they are the right people and then having to help them depart if they're the wrong people is a very tough job. And it, uh, if the founder has their say, typically they would prefer you not to replace their people. Yeah. And so that's a, it's a very difficult navigation on the, on the people front. On the process front, you have a lot of things that are, uh, that are changing as you grow. So anybody that's ever run a company that has grown by an order of magnitude or more than that, you realize that some of your paper processes have to be given up to automated processes. Mm-hmm. And some of your management techniques have to change because you now have to scale across more people. And specialization has to occur. And so what we find is that we have to reinvent or have to institute new processes in a company. And that often is uncomfortable because we're back to people again. People tend not to like change despite what they may say. We all, we all are, are creatures of habit. And um, getting people to change from things that were already working is also a tough task. So figuring out how to get people to understand that perhaps the way they're going about things needs to change, even though it's working today, but mm-hmm. it may not be working as you scale again. So those are the big challenges that you run into. And I know that when you come into a new company, usually the founder is usually staying on, you know, taking an executive role, but not managing the day to day. And what I've learned is that most founders, especially those that are very detail oriented tend to take in so many take on so many tasks at the same time and they say you know what rather than hiring somebody else to do this you know i know this process or i know this um particular function well enough it's just better if i do it myself why do you think that they're so reluctant to give up control and let other people take the reins from from them yeah so i think it's really natural actually and i think they they uh, they're right Unfortunately, it doesn't scale. So founders, especially the founders that I've worked with who have been very successful, they're really good. They're really good at doing a lot of these tasks. And so they have to look at these tasks and say, okay, I'm going to give up something or give up doing something that I'm really good at. That's a hard thing to do. Human nature says that when we do things that we're good at and we get that reinforcement back from from the universe in that we're doing it well, we just crave doing more of it. So that's, it's, it's great. It's, it's, that's why they have this problem is because they are so capable. But the problem is that in order to scale a company, you've actually got to distribute out those functions to other people. And so what I do when I talk to founders is that I recognize immediately that they are likely not going to find somebody who's as good as they are at certain of the tasks that they do. They may be the best in the world at doing it. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is we have to realize that we can sub-optimize those tasks because they may not be the best and highest usage of the CEO, the founder's talents. And so what we try to do is we try to get them to find people who can do the task, let's say it's 80% as well as they can, 
hand it off to them, realize that it's okay for somebody to only do it 80% as well as they can yeah. because it gives them the opportunity to climb that value ladder and to do more important tasks like strategy and architecting the future and maybe even raising uh, additional funds so they can allocate those to growing markets. Yeah. Now, I, I love how you mentioned this because this fix, fits in neatly with my next question, which is, like I said earlier, you were featured as the main protagonist on a HBS case study. And I know when I was in business school, we used to do a lot of the HBS case studies. And I always wondered, you know, how would this person actually feel if he was here listening in the room while we're talking about him, what he should do and what he shouldn't do. And you have the fortune of being able to sit in a bunch of these classes while students, business uh, students, are talking about you, what you should have done, what you shouldn't have done. And I believe the case was uh, based on one of your first inter interventions. Is that correct? It, it was. Yeah. Well, it was actually based on the first four. That's oh. why it's less is more times four is the title. Yes. Okay. So tell us a little bit about sitting in the room and hearing uh, business students dissect your own experience. Because I know it's going to be like putting you in, um, what's they call it, the fishbowl, where you go yes. in and you help entrepreneurs you know, re-engineer their businesses. But now you get to see the other side where people are looking at what you're doing to see if you're doing the right job. So tell us a little bit about that experience for you. That's, that's great. Actually, nobody's ever asked me that question, but it's a terrific question. Um, so uh, my experience is this. It's, if you can get the opportunity to have a room full of the smartest business students in the world Take apart everything that you've ever done in your career and tell you how stupid you are. You should do that because it's a very humbling experience. Mm. But um, you have to have a thick skin because they will point out the obvious to you. And it may be obvious now in retrospect, but yeah. it's w way easier to do that in retrospect than it, did, than it was when I went through it. And I did some silly things. And uh, in, in, again, looking back over my career, there's a lot of things I would have changed of the way that I acted. But with that said, it's a really cool experience to be in the room. And I've had I had two really neat things that happened, and I'll I'll, I'll give those to you quickly. Sure. So in one class at uh, at MIT, uh, I actually was able to get into the room without the students realizing it was me. Now, yeah. of course, I got gray hair, and I'm older than most of the students in the room. But a lot of times they have visitors come in, so I sat quietly in the back of the room. Nobody paid much attention to me. And one of the students who very correctly pointed out something that I did that was really dumb, he said, without knowing I was in the room, I think Les needs to put his big boy pants on. And, and with that, I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And but I, did, I didn't identify myself. The class laughed a bunch. Um, it was pretty fun. The, the professor got a little uncomfortable because he knew I was in the classroom. Anyway, it got a little further in the class, and, the, and always during those classes, I get to play a role towards the second half of the class. Yeah. In any case, professor asked the question, and, um, and he looked around the room. He says, does anybody want to answer this question? And he points to me. He says, Les, how about you answering this question? Ooh. And I stood up in the back of the room, and I, I, uh, I, I stood up kind of slowly, and I turned to the, to the, the uh, student in the class who had said that, and I said, well, 
first let me put on my pick boy pants and then I'll answer that. <laughs> Very so, funny. It, it, it was fun. It really was fun. And the second one that was also very cool and it also wasn't planned was this was at Harvard Business School. So in my fourth case, um, there was a there was a, a rather unceremonious uh, situation and actually I got fired from the from the company hmm. and um, and that's a I think that's a natural hazard of being a successor and I tell that to people that are thinking about being successors um, but uh, in that class it turns out that the venture capitalist who was the chairman of the board of the company that I got fired from mm-hmm. was actually visiting the class that day at Harvard they often have venture capitalists show up at this class because it is about founders and, and early stage companies. Yeah. And, um, and in that class, I get to play this role. And typically the role I get to play is the chairman of the board. And one of the students tends to role play and become me. So I have to actually play authentically what happened in the class. So in this case, I was a little worried because I was playing the guy that was sitting right in front of me in the classroom. <laughs> uh, in any case, it, it worked out pretty well after the class I went to. I, I asked him how authentic I had been, and he thought I did a pretty good job. So uh, those are two interesting uh, scenarios. Oh, that, that's that's so cool to hear. That's very cool to hear. So now, in some most of these organizations, you know, it's usually lonely at the top as as the CEO. You never really hear the truth of what's really going on. You know, so um, how have you been able to overcome this problem when you get in, especially being the new guy supposed to lead the team to the promised land? Yeah. So as I as I write in the book, if you want a friend, get a dog. Yeah. Um, and that's that's probably a great idea. Of course, your spouse can be helpful as well. But sometimes when you whine a lot, your spouse uh, complains about that, too. My dog doesn't complain when I whine. Um, but seriously, the, the, the way that I typically go about it, and I actually recommend this to founders as well, is to see if they can get an opportunity to form a relationship with people in the organizations in the organization that feel like it, they are protected enough to give you the truth. Mm-hmm. One of the rarest commodities in corporate America is the truth. Yeah. Uh, People tend to try to tell people who are in power what they want to hear. And so what I try to do is I try to disarm people. I try to be a, a normal human being, which is which is fairly true in, in, in terms of what I am. I'm fairly normal. And so what I try to do is share things with them that where they can see that I'm just like them. So I, I talk about playing golf with, uh, with people in the company. Anybody that's ever played golf knows it's a very humbling experience. And I'm not the greatest golfer in the world. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. But when you play golf, it's, it's very hard to put on airs. It's very hard to be different than who you really are yeah. because it is such a humbling experience. So that's one of those. I also often do things like casual lunches. So I'll do a, a pizza lunch, and I try to do that on a regular basis, say once a month, and, and just invite people from the company in, not necessarily people that are in management, but other people. And we start with you know, disarming stories. So tell, tell something about yourself that nobody knows. And so I always tell the story. I have a few different ones, but I always tell the story that I, I, when I went to school, one of my classmates was Dee Snyder, who, for those heavy metal fans in your audience, Dee Snyder is the lead singer for Twisted Sister. Hmm. And, um, and so that's pretty cool that I went to school with him. But even cooler, when we were in high school, I had longer hair than Dee Snyder did. 
Um, and so people look at me and they look at me now with short gray hair and they say, that couldn't possibly be. And that <laughs> tends to begin to, to show that I'm just like them, that I, that I, when I was in high school, I was very different than I am today, just like they were. And that maybe they feel comfortable enough that they can actually give me the truth. Yeah, that's very cool. Now, what about um, succession issues in a family-owned business? Because I know it m must not be easy coming into a situation. Take, for example, if the dad or the grandpa is transitioning off to the next generation, there's going to be a clash in terms of, you know, just the generational change where someone wants to do things in a more mod modern way versus how it was done in the past. Have you ever been in a situation like that and how have you managed that situation? Yes. Yeah, so I have been in those kind of situations a couple of different times. The one that I've been most intimate with is a company that I actually sit on the board of today. It's a company in New York city in the water treatment business. And it's a 90 year old company now on its uh, third generation of family managers. And, um, I had to sit with the company. I've been on the board for almost a dozen years, but I had to sit with the company early on and get them to tell me what they really wanted the outcome to be. Mm -hmm. So you really have a choice when you're a family business. You may, in fact, be in it for the money, if you will, to either get rich or at least make a living. Um, but you also may be in it for the family legacy. A lot of times people start companies or want to perpetuate generational companies because it makes them feel connected to their uh, their predecessors to their family. Yeah. But the two are absolutely dead in conflict. They just are. Now you can compromise between the two, but if you compromise, you will sub-optimize one or the other. So I try to get family businesses to tell me which it is that's more important. And if they tell me that family legacy is more important, then we tend to try to help manage the company towards that yeah. rather than an exit strategy, for example. If they tell me the other way, which often they do, often they'll tell me that it's about, you know, making the, the, the next generation wealthy or having a, a effectively an endowment for the family. Um, then I say to them, okay, then what you have to consider is that your gene pool, albeit it may be a wonderful gene pool, it's limited. Mm -hmm. And you likely won't find the optimal CEO in the next generation of your gene pool. And you need to expand your horizons beyond that. Yeah. And if you do it right, you can actually welcome somebody who might be better at running the company, mm -hmm. who may not have the same same last name as the as the founder. And um, if you do that right, you can get what you need from a from a wealth generation. And if you find the right CEO uh, who is uh, capable of being sensitive enough to the family legacy, you can actually manage that in a what I like to say good enough fashion. Yeah. Now, in the book, there's a particular chapter that I really liked, which was where it was talking about um, CEOs that are afraid to ask for help. And your illustration there was basically um, the gentleman you were talking about, Mr. DiBartolo, I believe, who right. you guys were supposed to go, um, was it snowboarding or something like that? And, and he didn't know how to snowboard and he asked you for help. And this was somebody that you have kept in touch with over the years. You met him when he was in college. So my question is this, why is it so hard for leaders at the top to humble themselves to ask for help? Because it will seem natural yeah. that, you know, you, you really don't know and you can't know everything. You should be able to at least humble yourself to ask for help. 
Yeah. It's a, it's, it's the, it's the million dollar question. Many times it is the million dollar question inside mm-hmm. these companies or more. So the, the, the issue is, is this, you've got, and especially in the case of founders, you've got very headstrong, very, very driven, very capable people. And what happens is as they succeed, they get this reinforcement that they are good at what they do. And they believe that that translates into must know what I am doing. So therefore asking somebody for help actually admits that perhaps they don't know everything about what they are doing and that they think can be scary for their followers. So they they don't like to let down their hair and, and, and make that happen. So again, it's a very natural condition. However, what we find, and I think you'll find it in your own life, and it doesn't have to be in business. It certainly mm-hmm. doesn't have to be in a founder-based company. Yeah. But w- when you ask somebody for help, they feel great about you, oddly enough. Mm. And the reason they feel great about you is twofold. One is you've, you've given them your belief that perhaps they know more than you in a particular area. Yeah. And, and second you've agreed that perhaps you are not the know-it-all that has the answers to all the questions and that you might be willing to listen. And uh, the human condition is one that says, uh, in general, we as human beings love to be asked for help and love to offer help. Yes. And so when that happens, it's a very endearing thing. And in fact, it can be perhaps the most powerful thing you can do just as a human being. I like that. I like that a lot. So as we start to transition towards the end of the show, my one of the last questions I have for you here is um, you're an advocate of participating in CEO peer groups and masterminds. So could you tell us what are some of the benefits you've derived over the years from participating in such groups? Yeah, they're, they're terrific. And there's lots of them around in, in various places. Uh, and you certainly can find one in your in your geographic locations. Uh, the the value of a CEO group of a peer group is uh, done right. You get an opportunity to have smart people, uh, kind of like my class at Harvard Business School. Smart people tell you the truth, and since truth is such a scarce commodity, this is a really valuable thing. So in these groups, typically what you do is you will expose yourself. I don't mean that physically, but you'll expose your your company through something similar to to like an x-ray, so they'll see the insides. And when you do that, these people uh, who have no agenda, they're not on your board, they're not your investors, they can ask you all the hard questions that perhaps nobody else would. And although your board might be willing to ask you hard questions, they have an agenda when they do that, right? So they have a vested interest. So this is the only place where you can get unvarnished questions and answers and suggestions from a team of people who are very smart. And um, it's it's a uh, it's a unique opportunity. It's one you can't get inside your company mm-hmm. because you can't do the same thing with your execs, and you can't do it with your board, and you probably don't want to do it with your spouse, and your dog probably won't answer you when you ask them. So this is the, <laughs> this is the place to get it. Great. And my last question for you is this: before um, we sign off, so um, what's the one key takeaway you'd want to share? for anyone that has listened to you, listened to your experience, and is still on the fence about getting the book and reading the book, what's the main key takeaway you want people to leave with after they've read the book? Yeah, 
I think the main takeaway is that, that everybody believes that their companies and their situations are completely unique and that their answers are different than any other answers that they'll get. And they probably can't look it up in a book on how to fix or, or improve their current situations. And my experience in the six situations that I've been in and the dozens of other ones that I've reviewed with other entrepreneurs is that there's a very strong similarity between them. And there are some ideas in the book that will help jumpstart you towards those answers. It'll help you cut past some of the problems and some of the, the mistakes that I made in my career. Yeah. And if you can see how badly I've done and realize that you can be better than that, mm-hmm. and you can be encouraged and you can get to the, to the finish line a lot quicker. Great. So with that said, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show, Les. So tell us a little bit about where people can meet you, get to interact with you, and of course, um, purchase the book, Don't F It Up. I like that name, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. You can get the book at, at, uh, at Amazon or, or at any bookstore, really. Uh, if they don't have it, I'm sure they can order it. Um, you can get in touch with me at my website, which is www.foundertransitions, with an S, dot com, foundertransitions.com. Uh, there's lots of information there. That also will direct you to the Amazon site for the book, and uh, it'll, uh, it'll give you an opportunity to get in touch with me directly. I love to have people ask me for help. Great. And I'll put all those links you mentioned in the show notes on the website and also in social media. So with that said, my friend, thanks for coming on to share your story, to share your words of wisdom, and of course, teaching us a little bit about how not to F it up in our businesses. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.